Advanced First Sports Network listeners, welcome to another episode of The Call Sheet. This is Kevin Smith with you. Happy to be here again after another, another exciting week of NFL football. We just finished week 10 and man, there were, there were six games that ended in week 10 in walk-off field goals and a couple more that ended in the last minute of the contest. So boy, if the NFL has been seeking parity, it's got it. And it's getting some exciting games as a result. Hey, but before we jump into all that, man, let's do something real quick. I, I'd just like to take the opportunity to plug a new venture that I'm involved in here at Fans First. I did this week my first video breakdown. And for Steelers fans, it was of the Pittsburgh game in particular, their run game against the Green Bay Packers last Sunday. And that posted on our Steel Curtain Network YouTube channel. And I'm going to be doing those video breakdowns from time to time uh, on the Steelers for Steeler fans, but also in the NFL in general and working on one right now on some of the some of the exciting endings in week 10. In particular, looking a little bit at C.J. Stroud and the Houston Texans and some of the magic that they're working down there. So if you get a chance, man, I'd love for you to check those out. They will be showing up on our YouTube channel, either on the FFSN YouTube channel or for Steelers fans, Steel Curtain Network YouTube channel. And we're going to run those every week. The shorter ones will be just flash pieces on the NFL, the more involved ones on the Steelers. And as always, man, appreciate everybody's support out there. All right, so let's jump in to this week's episode of the call sheet. This will be, and by the way, I think I forgot to mention, they're going to be called call sheet breakdowns. So if you're, if you're looking, doing a search, you want to search call sheet breakdowns for those video breakdowns of NFL action. All right, so this is episode 31 of the call sheet. And as we do each week, we're going to look at a player who wore that number talk a little bit, bit about him and his career. And this week, we got a really compelling and controversial figure to discuss, and that is the assassin, Jack Tatum. What a, what a nickname. Jack Tatum, defensive back for the Oakland Raiders in the 1970s, All-American out of Ohio State University. He's in the College Football Hall of Fame, and then a three-time All-Pro and Super Bowl champion with the Oakland Raiders. And I, I think about Jack Tatum. I think about the, the rules that govern the NFL right now. There's no way, no way Jack Tatum would be able to make it in the NFL these days. Now, I, they, have a, they have a thing now in the NFL called a hit on a defenseless receiver. And I still don't know what that is exactly. Because a lot of times it looks like a receiver trying to catch the ball and the defensive back hits him. And I, and I just think to myself, what's the defensive back supposed to do here? Jack Tatum's entire career was defined by hits on defenseless receivers. I mean, he was one of the most physical football players in the history of the game. And the big debate about him was whether that physicality was within the confines of the rules or whether he was a dirty player. I mean, most of his hits back then were not flagged. Today, some of those hits would probably get him arrested. I mean, I can still see in my mind Tatum's hit on Vikings wide receiver Sammy White in Super Bowl Eleven that sent White's helmet flying off his body. And I think it may have given some of the viewers some pause where they wondered if White's head was actually still in the helmet. You know, more seriously, Tatum infamously hit New England Patriots wide receiver Daryl Stingley on a play in 1978 that left Stingley paralyzed. Now, I've, I've looked at that hit 
several times. I mean, it was certainly vicious and there's no doubt it would draw a penalty today, but I, I don't, I don't know if I'd call it dirty. I mean, Stingley was lunging for a ball thrown out in front of him and Tatum hit him about a step after the throw arrived and his head was down, but he, he didn't lead with it. He actually hit Stingley with his shoulder and he hit him up high, of course, in the neck area. And that's what caused the injury. But man, you know, under the NFL rules of that day in 1978, that was a legal hit. It wasn't even penalized. I mean, the NFL went on to tighten up some of their rules after that. Uh, but most of what Tatum did during his career and, and much of what earned him the reputation of one of the dirtiest plays in league history was actually legal at the time. I remember Chuck Knoll, the Steelers head coach, famously referred to Stingley and his secondary mate, George Atkinson, as uh, part of the criminal element in the NFL. And, and, and Noel got some flack as to whether or not that context had a racial connotation to it. Uh, but I mean, that's just often how people thought of Jack Tatum. I think with the Daryl Stingley play, when you think back on Jack Tatum, one of the things that really riled people up about it was that Tatum failed to express remorse publicly uh, towards Stingley or about the hit. I've read that he in private was, was tortured by it. I mean, it's, I'll never be one that can tell you, I know what's going on inside somebody else's head, what their mindset is, their emotions or how they really feel about it. I don't know that at all. So all we're left with is what they may have said publicly. What did they leave on the record? And in that sense, Jack Tatum didn't leave much. He never publicly expressed remorse for the fact that Daryl Stingley was paralyzed. But again, it's been said that he was very, very privately torn up by that. So, so who knows? It's not, again, our job to wonder. Still, Jack Tatum, one of the most fearsome defenders in the NFL at a time when the rules on playing defense in the league were that there really weren't any rules. You could head slap offensive linemen. You could pummel quarterbacks with no fear of reprisal. You could hammer wide receivers wherever they roamed. It was a far more vicious game than the product we watch today. And under, under those rules, Jack Tatum, for good or for bad, he was one of the best. So number 31, the assassin, Jack Tatum. All right, let's turn our attention to one of my favorite subjects, coaching, right? Uh, those of you who listen regularly know that I'm a coach, uh, and, uh, and I, I love the coaching aspect of the NFL. And as I mentioned in the beginning, man, Week 10 featured six games that ended on game-winning field goals. And the nature of close games often magnifies coaching decisions because these, you know, coaching decisions matter in all games, of course, but when the result is close, uh, the spotlight tends to shine on the coaches a little bit brighter. You know, why did they call this play instead of that one? Why this decision? Why that personnel group? Why did they challenge that play or not challenge that play? All of those things seem to have an immediate effect on the, uh, on the outcome of the game. I mean, I talked last week on this show about our high school team's 23 to 22 loss in the state playoffs here in New Jersey, where we had a 22 16 lead and the ball in field goal range with three minutes to play and the opportunity to make it a two score game. And we ran a third down play where we wound up losing six yards and got pushed out of field goal range. And then we had to go for it unsuccessfully on fourth down. And then our opponent drove 70 yards and scored the winning touchdown with 25 seconds left. And it's been one of the biggest gut punch losses of my personal coaching career. 
And I have in the two weeks since replayed that game in my head a hundred times, just trying to figure out what I could have done differently. What could have changed the result in particular, that third down call, what else could we have run? And I've lost, you know, I've lost a bunch of sleep on that one, man. So yes, in close games, whether it's fair or not, the calls are magnified and boy, did the NFL produce some close games in week 10. So we're going to look a little bit at, you know, a, a couple of the coaches whose decisions mattered in close games, coaches who had, who made great decisions otherwise. And let's start with, with Dan Campbell and the Detroit Lions who won a wild 41 38 game over the chargers. Dan Campbell went for it five times on fourth down in that contest, making four of them five times. One of those decisions was on a fourth and five. So we're not talking about like fourth and one on all of these plays. And the gutsiest of those decisions was he went for it on fourth and two from the Chargers 26 with a minute 47 to play and the game tied at 38. Obviously, the conventional wisdom there would be to kick the field goal. It would have been a 43-yarder, a very makeable field goal by today's standards. But Campbell didn't kick the field goal there because the quarterback on the opposing sideline was Justin Herbert, one of the best in the game. And he didn't trust giving the ball back to Herbert with a minute 40 or so remaining up by three. He, he figured at, at worst, Herbert's going to drive them down the field for a game tying field goal. And, you know, beyond that, he may even, he may even, you know, lead them into the end zone and end the game right now. So what he did instead was he went for it and he had his quarterback, Jared Goff throw a pass, which Goff completed to tight end Sam Laporta for a first down and Detroit then ran the clock all the way down and kicked the walk-off field goal for their 41-38 win. And that, man, is guts. And that's sticking to your guns, though. That's really not Dan Campbell doing anything that's not a Dan Campbell thing. I mean, the, the Lions have been one of the most aggressive teams in the league this year going for it on fourth downs. The players know what to expect. I don't think you would have heard any grumbling there from Detroit players had they, got, had they missed it on that fourth and two, had they not gotten it. I think the Detroit players admire his aggressiveness. I, I think they feel empowered by it. The fact they've been very good on fourth downs this year, converting them at about an 80% clip is obviously garnering some of that support in the locker room. I think if they've been going for it on fourth down as regularly as they have been and, and converting on like a third of the plays, there'd be a lot more second guessing. But this is the way Dan Campbell has coached the team all year. This is what makes the Lions exciting. And this is what's led to some of their success. He's been aggressive by nature and it's paying off. So another coach whose decisions were crucial, crucial in leading his team to a, a narrow victory in week 10 was Mike Tomlin in Pittsburgh. And I know I'm a bit of a homer as a Steelers fan, but I try to be honest about the things that we talk about. And you really have to look at some of what Mike Tomlin is doing in Pittsburgh and marvel at it. I mean, the Steelers are not the most talented team in the league, and yet here they are at six and three. And remarkably, they have won nine straight one-score games dating back to last season. Nine straight. That is really a remarkable stretch. And it speaks to Tomlin's ability to prepare his team to handle the pressure of these contests. And also of his coaching staff to press the right buttons in the game's ultimate moments, which is something that Tomlin and co did on Sunday against Green Bay, right at the end of the game in particular. 
with the Steelers leading 23-19 to and Green Bay on Pittsburgh's 16-yard line with three seconds left. So they got a chance to win it. One final play. They need a score to win. A play from the 16 is makeable. That is a makeable play. That is not a Hail Mary situation by any stretch. You can run a normal offensive play in that situation. The Packers, they broke the huddle. It looked like they were going to come out in an empty set, a five-receiver empty set, and then the Steelers called timeout. And when the camera cut to their sideline, there was a flurry of interaction between Tomlin and defense coordinator Terrell Austin, and interestingly, safety Micah Fitzpatrick, who was not in uniform because he was out with an ankle injury. And then when the defense came back on the field, they were in, they were in a different alignment. It, it had looked like going into the timeout that Pittsburgh was going to align in a man under two deep formation where they would be manned up on all five receivers with, the, with their defenders, pressing them close to the line of scrimmage. And then you'd have two deep safeties behind them. And when they came out of the timeout, they were in a very different configuration. And that configuration is something that's often referred to as the picket fence where they had four rushers at the line of scrimmage and then nobody covering any of the receivers in the intermediate zones. And instead they had seven defenders draped across the goal line, literally lined up from sideline to sideline across the goal line. And it's interesting, man, because what we found out after the game was that the reason the Steelers called timeout was because when the original play call came in, Fitzpatrick ran over and urged Terrell Austin to change the call. And he reminded Austin of a similar situation back in 2021 where Baltimore had the ball deep in Pittsburgh territory and had a chance to win it on the final play. And in that game, the Steelers played the picket the picket fence defense. with And Fitzpatrick wound up breaking up a pass intended for Willie Sneed in the end zone, and the Steelers held on to win the game. So, so during the timeout, Tomlin and Austin and their star safety put their heads together and Austin changed the call and the Steelers came out. They ran the picket fence and safety DeMonte Kazee ended up intercepting Jordan Love's pass in the end zone to seal the win. And you got to give credit uh, to Tomlin for having the presence to use the timeout there and to get input from his coach and his player. I mean, that's a big move in that situation. And it really speaks to some of Tomlin's greatness as a head coach. Yeah, I think people perceive Mike Tomlin as a player's coach. And that, that's something that can sometimes be used against people. I've heard, I've heard Steelers fans use it against Tomlin, in essence, by saying that it's, it means he's too soft on his players and he, and he lets too much go and he lets them, them run the show too much. Like he's a coach that cozies up to guys and tries to act cool with them and be their buddy. But that's not what it means, man. A player's coach is a coach who respects his players who treats them like men, who doesn't throw them under the bus to the media or to suit their own needs, who doesn't use them like these like faceless, nameless chess pieces. A player's coach values their input and considers it. And even if he doesn't take it, he lets them know that they're being respected and appreciated. It's not about being cool or about being their buddy. It's about treating them the right way and letting them know they're valued. And in that instance, at the end of the Green Bay, that's exactly what Tomlin did. And it paid off. All right, let me give you one more. One more coaching decision that I liked over the weekend. Uh, and this didn't happen in a close game. This happened, as a matter of fact, in a blowout. And this is a guy who I have not hid my respect for in previous episodes of this podcast. And that's Kyle Shanahan. Uh, Shanahan 
you know, his coaching decisions underscored the value of good coaching and the value of great game planning, which is a common theme on this podcast. So with San Francisco mired in a three-game losing streak and a good Jacksonville team coming to town on Sunday, Shanahan needed to find a way to break the Niners out of their funk. And he was getting a crucial weapon back in his offensive arsenal, receiver Debo Samuel, who had been out for a while. But it wasn't Samuel's return that sparked San Francisco to victory. It was Shanahan's ability to exploit Jacksonville's biggest weakness. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is what coaching in the NFL is all about. And at the level where I coach, at the high school level, games are often won on talent because there's some schools that are just far superior to others from a talent perspective. Like one of our opponents, for example, has five skill position players, skill position players with power five offers to schools like Michigan and Alabama and Penn State. I mean, I'm not saying that coaching doesn't matter at that school, but when you can throw bubble screens to your stud who's going to Michigan and watch him just take him 80 yards because he can run through and around the the opposition, I mean, that's a big advantage. Coaches, coaching absolutely matters at all levels, but at the lower levels, the talent disparities that exist often create greater advantages. And that that's just not true in the NFL. Or should I say, it's not as true. I mean, you still have players whose talents are unique. Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, Lamar Jackson, they're unique talents. And they create physical mismatches because of their natural abilities. But more often than not, NFL coaches have to scheme up their mismatches by getting their personnel aligned on an opponent's weakest personnel or by finding a hole in a particular scheme or a system and exploiting it. And that's exactly what Shanahan did against the Jaguars on, on Sunday. You're coming into the game. Jacksonville had given up more receptions to running backs than any team in the NFL. So Shanahan's game plan was to get his star back, Christian McCaffrey, out into the passing game as much as possible. I mean, San Francisco ended up targeting McCaffrey 10 times, and he finished the game with six receptions. But the volume of throws directed his way forced Jacksonville to set their coverage towards him. And that opened up opportunities for San Francisco's other receivers. I mean, George Kittle, the tight end, he benefited the most from the attention McCaffrey received, racking up 116 receiving yards. And a lot of that was in the middle of the field. So by pulling the safeties out to help cover McCaffrey, the Jags linebackers were often left one-on-one with Kittle. And that is a mismatch seven days a week. So San Francisco rolled to victory, looking like the team they'd been the first month and a half of the season. And a big reason why was Shanahan's ability to use his most versatile chess piece to exploit Jacksonville's weakness. All right, we're going to take a break here. And on the other side, I was initially I was going to talk about the state of the quarterback position as we pass the halfway point of the NFL season. But I'm going to wait a week on that. And the reason I'm going to wait a week on that is because two things. One, the Bills fired their offense coordinator, Ken Dorsey, after their loss on Sunday night football. And that's interesting. And I want to see how that plays out going forward. I want to see how that plays out in particular next week. What effect would it have on Josh Allen? And two, Josh uh, Deshaun Watson on Wednesday, it was announced that he's going to miss the rest of the season with his shoulder injury as he goes down uh, or as he undergoes surgery. And I'm going to look, I'm going to look a little bit at what Cleveland does. It's announced that they're going to start Dorian Thompson 
against the Steelers on Sunday. I want to see how he plays. What do the Browns do with him? And we'll 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 re regather, so to speak, on the quarterback uh, position, and we'll have that conversation on next week's show. So instead, after the break, we're going to turn our attention to some of the big games on tap in Week 11, including the massive Super Bowl rematch between the Eagles and the Chiefs. So come on back for that conversation. Kevin Smith back with you on the call sheet during the break. I took a minute and just looked a little bit at some of the stories around Deshaun Watson and his season ending shoulder surgery. And and in searching for some of those articles, I came across an article about his contract, his 200 and something million dollar contract. And I was aware that Watson's contract was significant and I know that he'd restructured it. But when I came across some of the numbers, man, I was just blown away. I, I I was stunned to realize that this year, Deshaun Watson's cap hit in Cleveland is 19 million. Next season? For next season? All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna let you take a guess. What do you think it jumps up to next season? I will pause for three seconds to let you ponder that. Deshaun Watson's cap hit this year is 19 million. What does it jump up to next season? Ready? Take a guess. All right, here's your answer. 64 million. Deshaun Watson's cap hit in Cleveland next year goes to $64 million. That's mind-boggling to me. I mean, again, I understand the money that top-level quarterbacks make. But $64 million for Deshaun Watson, whoo, that's going to be uh, that's going to be an albatross, man, that, that the Browns are going to have to deal with uh, on down the road, especially given the fact that they're now paying him for uh, somebody else to be their quarterback over the last nine weeks of the NFL season. Okay, so speaking of, right, let, let's get into uh, week 11 games. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to profile a few here that I think are really interesting, and we'll just talk briefly about each. Uh, I'm going to pick three divisional contests in the AFC and then two cross-conference games pitting NFC teams against AFC teams that I think are fascinating. All right, so let's start with the Thursday night game. Tonight's game, actually. Cincinnati at Baltimore. That's one of two big showdowns in the AFC North this week. The 5-4 and four Bengals and the 7-3 and three Ravens, both coming off of upset losses at home, right? Cincinnati loses last week to the Houston Texans on a, on a walk-off field goal, and Baltimore blows a 17-point lead. Baltimore blows a 14-point lead with 11 minutes to go and loses to the Cleveland Browns. And so those two teams will play each other tonight at M&T Bank Stadium in Baltimore. Sure to be a great game in what is, you know, obviously a, an excellent rivalry, especially over the last five years or so since you've had the Joe Burrow versus Lamar Jackson showdowns. And in games like this, and in really in the AFC North in general, where, where everything is so tight. Let me, let me step back for a second from Cincinnati-Baltimore and bring in Sunday's other game between Pittsburgh and Cleveland, the 6-3 and three Steelers against the 6-3 and three Browns. You have that entire division now separated by a razor-thin margin. It's actually a game and a half between first-place Baltimore and last-place Cincinnati with the Steelers and Browns just a half game back 
of the bank of the the Ravens, everybody's within a game of one another in the loss column. If Cincinnati beats Baltimore tonight, boy, then that just creates total chaos in the division. So in the in in games like these, where these opponents know each other so well, where the games are always close, what are the keys? What do you always look for as keys in rivalry games where the margin of error is very thin? And for me, it's two things. It's turnovers, which is a universal key to any victory. Uh, There's a lot of statistics that you can look at in professional football that tell you a story about how a game's going to turn out. But to me, turnovers remains the ultimate statistic. It remains the one that if you uh, don't win that battle, your odds of winning the football game decrease significantly. And a lot of it has to do I mean, there's practical considerations, right? Obviously, you turn the ball over on your own 30 and you give your opponent a short field and now you've got problems. But there's the there's the uh, emotional effect that turnovers have. I can just tell you as a coach, there's nothing more deflating on, the, on your sideline than when you turn the ball over. And there's nothing more invigorating outside of maybe a blocked punt than when you create a turnover. When you create a turnover, the enthusiasm on your sideline, the jolt of energy that that creates is amazing. I think the only thing that might create more is a block punt because a block punt is such a rare thing and and there's such a level of excitement when it happens. So obviously the turnover battle will be huge in this contest. And the other thing is red zone. What do you look for in in big rivalry games where you know the score is going to be close? You look for which team does the best in the red zone, scoring opportunities are often limited. And so the teams that are able to get six instead of getting three when they're down in the scoring zone are often the teams that are the most effective. So those are sure to be two great games. Cincinnati at Baltimore, Pittsburgh at Cleveland in a really competitive and fascinating AFC North in games where the story may end up being told by the turnover margin and red zone efficiency. All right, let's go to another divisional contest. Uh, these are teams that maybe are heading in a different direction than those four AFC North teams, the New York Jets at the Buffalo Bills. So the Jets clawed their way back respectably after the Aaron Rodgers injury in week one and, and really kind of got themselves back into the playoff conversation, but they've lost two in a row now and they have not scored a touchdown in 11 straight quarters. And that of course has become significant for them. Uh, Zach Wilson just has he's he's a, he's a career backup man and and I and he's been forced into being a starter. I think he, I think we've we've seen enough of Zach Wilson now to sort of know who he is. And I mean he's really just not going to generate a ton of points in that New York offense. Now the Jets have a very good defense and they can probably hang around in games even with Wilson playing as he is, but this the significant issue for them will be how much can their defense just hold up? Uh, while you know you you got you know that you're not going to score more than 20 points a game, how many times can they just keep you in games at that rate with the offense producing at that rate? With Buffalo, they're going to be fascinating to watch this week because they've moved on from offensive coordinator Ken Dorsey. They fired him after last week's loss. They've elevated Joe Brady, who was the quarterbacks coach, to that position. And this is a little bit surprising considering the Bills are third in the NFL in offensive EPA. They're second in the NFL in third down conversion rate, and they're second in the NFL in completion percentage. So why do they move on from Brady? 
I, I think I'm sorry. Why did they move on from Dor- from Dorsey to Brady? I, I think a lot of it has to do with Josh Allen. Josh Allen has been erratic this year. He, he he seems to have regressed a little bit, and he's showing some of the tendencies of his rookie year when he turned the ball over with at a high frequency. Allen leads the NFL in turnovers right now, and while it feels a little bit like this is a desperation move on the part of the Bills this move to Joe Brady, I can't help but think that it has an awful lot to do with Allen's relationship with Brady, his and his regression in some ways as a quarterback. You got to protect the football. He leads the league in turnovers. Obviously he's not doing that. Buffalo's got a good defense. So in essence, the philosophy may be going forward. You know, let's bring in a guy who's going to minimize the turnovers, get more efficient play from Allen and just not beat us, right? Let's just not beat ourselves. If we don't beat ourselves, we've got enough skill players on offense and a good enough defense to keep us in it. The Bills are 5-5. Five and five. They've got a really hard schedule coming up. They play the Eagles next week. They've got the Dolphins uh, shortly down the road. They've got the Chiefs later on. I mean, they're going to they're gonna be up against it. And how many more games are they going to be able to lose and still qualify for the playoffs in that highly competitive AFC? Maybe a little bit of a desperation move, but it also may be one of those moves that sort of jolts the franchise back into, into playing uh, better football, being a little bit more conscious with the ball, uh, and you know, recreating a winning formula there in Buffalo. So for me, Jets-Bills is two desperate teams who are struggling on offense, and which one will be able to right themselves in that contest to win the football game. All right, let's move to our two interconference games that I think are really interesting. Let's start with Minnesota and Denver. That's the Sunday night game. This is two teams who were written off for dead earlier in the season and are now hot, playing hot football, man. The Vikings have ripped off five straight. They're in the thick of it now in the NFC playoff picture. And man, you got to give a lot of credit to Kevin O'Connell. He's doing a heck of a coaching job in Minnesota to get that team right. They've won two in a row in this five-game streak without Kirk Cousins, with Kirk Cousins being injured. The story from two weeks ago, when they brought in Josh Dobbs, and he didn't even know the team's snap count, and he had to learn it on the sideline because he had to go into the game because the backup got injured, and then Kevin O'Connell had to basically talk him through the plays in that 14-second window that you get when your communication on the headset is open. And Dobbs rallied the Vikings to a victory. That is remarkable, man. What a, what a coaching job by Kevin O'Connell. And then for Minnesota to get another thrilling victory last week. I mean, it's just really an excellent, excellent coaching job for O'Connell to be able to put, A, rally the Vikings from their bad start, and now B, put Dobbs in position with almost no training in their system to help them win games. I mean, their challenge now will be, though, to find some better balance on offense. Minnesota's fourth in the league in total pass attempts, averaging about 38 pass attempts per game. But they're 26th in the league in rushes by running back. So they got to get their running backs more involved because what we saw from Dobbs in Arizona earlier in the year was that he, he was impressive early on. Week three pulls a big upset over the Cowboys. But as the, as the season progressed, he got less effective as defenses really began to, to scheme for him and learn his weaknesses. 
And so I don't think that Kevin O'Connell is going to be able to lean on Josh Dobbs to throw the ball 38 times a game. He's going to have to get more out of his running game to be effective. As for the Broncos, their narrative is also very fascinating. They've won three straight. They're a little bit on the opposite end of Minnesota. They're third in the NFL in creating explosive plays by their running backs. Javante Williams has been really good. Uh, and, and But while Russell Wilson's playing well, it's been a very conservative dink and dunk offense. They're not creating explosive plays in the passing game. So the challenge for Denver will be to push the ball down the field a little bit more. But really, man, Sean Payton, who was exceptionally critical of Nathaniel Hackett when he came in, called, called Hackett, who was Denver's head coach last year and is now the OC with the Jets, said that Hackett and his staff did the worst coaching job in the history of the NFL. I mean, that's a little bit... Uh, extreme. Uh, but at the same time, I feel like Sean Payton was trying to sort of reset the culture. And then Denver gets off to a bad start. And now questions are starting to be asked about, well, hey, man, does Sean Payton just not have the touch anymore? He had Drew Brees and all that success in New Orleans. But Russell Wilson at this point in his career isn't Drew Brees. And can he recreate? Can he start from scratch without an elite quarterback? and find success. And what we've seen the last three weeks is they've done so. And so two really interesting narratives in this game, the Vikings and and their rebirth against the Broncos and their rebirth, which team will win out. Which brings us to the last game I want to look at, and, and it's the game of the week, Monday Night Football, the Philadelphia Eagles going out to Kansas City to visit the Chiefs in a rematch of the Super Bowl. You look at the Eagles, right? I mean, one of the big stories with them, we, we talked about red zone percentage um, in with those AFC North games. One of the big stories with the Eagles is that they're scoring touchdowns on 71% of their red zone possessions at home. But on the road, that, that number drops to 43%, scoring on just 43% of red zone possessions on the road. So that'll be telling for the Eagles, man. You're going to beat the Chiefs, you got to score touchdowns, not kick field goals. The Eagles are also minus two in the turnover department. I mean, those two measurables right there, poor red zone percentage on the road and being in the negative in the turnover percentage ratio, those are not championship measurables. And so the Eagles are going to have to to write those situations if they're going to be be successful late in the season. But again, but again, Philly's eight and one. Philly's got the best record in the NFL. And and it feels like everybody's picking on them. They're not this, they're not that. Jalen Hurts is turning the ball over too much, blah, blah, blah. But they're still 8-1, and one, right? And, I mean, we're really going to find out how good Philly is over the next four weeks because here's their next four games. Monday night at Kansas City, and then they play Buffalo, San Francisco, and Dallas in a row. Man, that's a stretch. So Philly's 8-1 and one now. If they're if they win three out of those four and, and, and we find the Eagles – you know, 11 and, and two at the end of this stretch. To me, they're the Super Bowl favorite. How about the Chiefs? Uh, well, first of all, Andy Reid is 4-0 and against his former team, against Philadelphia. So Reid obviously has been able to find formulas on how to beat the Eagles, including in last year's Super Bowl. But, and this is going to sound really weird, Kansas City's got to get better in the passing game. That seems like a weird thing to say about a Patrick Mahomes offense. But they lead the league in dropped passes. They're not creating explosive plays. Mahomes is on track for his worst season statistically. And they just they just got to get better production, production out of their wide receivers. Outside of rookie Rasheed Rice and obviously Travis Kelsey, they're just not getting it done 
at the receiver position. People thought that they would be better as a group, and they haven't been. So it will be very, very interesting to see how the Kansas City passing offense fares against Philadelphia's defense and how will Philadelphia do in terms of protecting the football and with their red zone offense on the road in what's sure to be a geeked up Arrowhead Stadium. So week 10 was awesome. Six games ending in walk-off field goals, a couple more ending in, you know, final possessions with the game on the line. Week 11 has some really fascinating games on tap, and hopefully it will provide us with continued dramatic football. It's been a great season so far in the NFL, and I'm up for it, man. So I appreciate everybody taking the journey with me. So that's going to do it here for episode 31 of The Call Sheet. And hopefully you guys will be back with us next week for episode 32 when we talk at the top about one of the most infamous number 32s in football history. I'll I'll leave you with that to ponder during the week. Have a great one, everybody. <laughs>